You choose Columbus Business First every week to give you the inside industry intelligence for nearly every business sector in central Ohio. And Columbus Business First chose Crate Media as its official podcast partner for its unique show, Women of Influence, now 70 episodes strong. With 4 million shows, hundreds of millions of listeners, and industry advertising revenues approaching $4 billion, podcasting is the fastest growing audio medium in the U.S. From law to medical, construction to automotive, retail to real estate, every brand has a story. Let Crate Media help tell yours. Visit crate.media slash CBF to learn more about how we can help while receiving a free one-hour casting session with our expert producers, which will help to uncover and shape your company's branded podcast. To learn more about sponsoring Columbus Business First Women of Influence podcast, please email Advertising Director Steve Hewitt at shewitt at bizjournals.com to get started. That's S-H-E-W-I-T-T at bizjournals.com. Hi, y'all. This is Eleanor Kennedy, Assistant Managing Editor of Columbus Business First and the host of this podcast, Women of Influence. This podcast features conversations with Columbus's leading women in business in which they talk about how they gained power, how they keep it, and how other women can follow in their footsteps. Today, we're chatting with Christy Angel, the CEO of YWCA Columbus. Thanks for joining us, Christy. Thank you for having me. It's uh, good to be here. So great uh, to chat with you a little bit. And so I want to start by kind of talking about your background first, which you spent a lot of your early career kind of in the political governmental world, correct? I did. Um, so how did you get into that? And sort of tell me how you moved oh, up the ladder gosh. there. How did I get into that? <laughs> you just kind of jump into the political world. I, I was bitten by the bug, so to speak, very young in just out of college actually in college, but then out of college and worked on some campaigns. I worked on a campaign for um, a guy named, uh, who was our first African-American city council member, city council president, I'm sorry, here in the Columbus area, Jerry Hammond. Mm -hmm. And then uh, with a woman named Les Wright, who uh, was his protege. And so I worked on their campaigns and, you know, really fell in love with local government in particular mm-hmm. um, and the kind of boots on the ground work that you can do from the political, in the political realm, but really helping people kind of where they are with their everyday living situations, whether it's figuring out what trash day, uh, you know, is or people who want recycling and how we figure out, you know, how to get, you know, residents recycling or other, you know, bigger problems, obviously, um, you know, land use, zoning, all of those kinds of things. And and so I was bitten by that bug very early in my work life. And just kind of from there, I got the ch- I had the chance to work with some incredible people. Mm-hmm. Well, and you worked in Mayor Coleman's I did. I did. So I wanted to be a legislative aide very young in, in my career. I had that opportunity to go work for really the the city council caucus. So I worked in the research office. And uh, at that time, there was a young, brand new council member named Michael B. Coleman. (laughs) You know, I'm a a new staffer and he was a new council member. And together, you know, they're like, you two work together, basically. (laughs) And um, I started working with him and, you know, he had a number of uh, ideas and he's an incredible visionary and also gave me a lot of opportunity to kind of um, shape things the way that, you know, I wanted to shape them. He had the idea and he would kind of let you go about doing the work. And so you had a great span of control, so to speak. 
working with him. And then, uh, so I worked with him his entire time when he was on city council, moved up to uh, his legislative aide. As he likes to say now, I we laugh about revisionist history. He's always like, she was my chief of staff. I'm like, yeah, well, there was no chief of staff. <laughs> and the pay was not, but okay. <laughs> um, and then I uh, helped transition him over to the mayor's office and became deputy chief of staff, director of operations for the city of Columbus. Stayed with him for uh, the through the uh, couple years in the first term. Left for ten years oh, wow. and had the opportunity because he is uh, the, this community's longest serving mayor. I had the chance to go back and work for him for the last four years of his term. Mm-hmm. So in what, a different role. How did you decide to leave initially? Yeah. What prompted that? Well, you know, that was a tough decision after being there for so long. But, you know, when you are, if you've never worked in, in a position like this, I'll describe it like this. When you, when it's just you and, and the council person and your, um, we had a, a, an administrative assistant, there were three of us. And when we moved to the mayor's office, then, of course, you have this huge, you know, staff and team. And you realize that there's a bond with the three of you because you've worked together for so very long and you can almost finish each other's sentences and you know, you know, who, what they're thinking. But at the same time, I also realized that it was a, an opportunity to give other people a chance to get close kind of to the action and to the work and to uh, develop in their, in their own right in, in the office. And I also realized that it was a chance for me to go back to school. I mm-hmm. wanted to get my master's. And so I uh, decided that I wanted to go back to school. There was a different way to do that. It would be difficult to do that in the mayor's office, I thought, at that time. I also wanted to work in the private sector. I was mm-hmm. like, you know, I'd never done this before. I'd worked in, worked in nonprofit organizations, and I had worked in government. And so I said, well, let me see if I can if I can cut it you know, uh-huh. in the private sector. You know, there are all those you know people who say, um, you know, well, the private sector, they work harder or... They do this, you know, it's different and so forth. So I wanted to see. It was actually that way. And so I left. It was a tough decision. I left early, but I also thought that I left, you know, the office in a good place. And um, I went and started working for AT&T when they were SBC Ameritech, if anybody can remember that. <laughs> and um, I worked for them for five years. Uh-huh. I did get my master's in uh, business administration. And then went to work and do lobbying work for some smaller consulting firms. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And then they just they pulled you back. And in. then Mayor Coleman <laughs> called me not long after his uh, election of his fourth and final term. He called me and said, "I need you. It's time for you to come home." Mm-hmm. Essentially, that's what he said. And I was like, "Let's talk." I missed having you know the interactions day to day with the residents of this community. I missed solving difficult problems, you know, um, and creating opportunities really for people who live here in Columbus. I missed the action really as mm-hmm. this community was growing. Um, we had just they had just passed the tax increase, income tax increase at that time. The community, the city was thriving. Jobs were being created. We were starting to experience the growth that we are experiencing today. Mm-hmm. And kind of on the precipice of making some other kind of internal changes in the organization. And so Mayor Coleman and I sat down and talked about what I would do. And 
the one thing he asked me to do, given the 10 years I'd spent out of the office, was to serve as the city's chief government relations officer mm-hmm. to improve our government relations with the state house and other uh, government leaders. I took that challenge on with a bright smile because <laughs> I had been doing that work. Uh-huh. And so it gave me a chance to bring what I had learned in the private sector back into government and then work with an amazing team. Uh, I remember he said, Mayor Coleman said, you get to work with the young the young people. Uh-huh. I don't was like, the young people? And he was like, yes, Shannon Harden uh-huh. and Ashley Sin. So he starts naming, and I'm like, okay. And I knew Shannon. Mm-hmm. I, Shannon's mother. I had known her. And so Shannon, I knew Shannon when he was five. And uh-huh. He became a part of my team. And, of course, now he's city council president, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what were some of the biggest surprises or or lessons you learned or things you saw in switching between the public and the private sector and then back? I think you can kind of take that any direction about what's really different and what's the same. Yeah. You know, I think the speed at which the private sector can move, right? You know, in the private sector, the CEO, if you're working for a major corporation, the CEO sets the tone, the vision, um, along with the board. The CEO says, this is what we're going to do, and we, they do it. I mean... Case in point, um, we went to bed at night one night, and we were SBC, mm-hmm. and we woke up and we were AT and T. Um, now we knew we were going, we were having a merger and so forth, but you know, somewhere along the lines of or in, with leadership, you know, in San Antonio at the time, someone said it's better for us to be AT and T than to be SBC, mm-hmm. and of course, AT and T had been our rival. I mean, our telecommunications rival. So, you know, you wake up and you're like, and new business cards are on my desk. Okay, (laughs) let's go. And so when you, you know, the decision comes, you know, to the, to you know, especially when you're in an office, kind of a statewide office of a larger corporation, the company decides here are the goals for the year and you you work towards those goals. And a lot of times they, they change a little bit because, you know, there may be a regulatory change or something that causes you to have to, uh, adjust, but you 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 adjust mm-hmm. and you move forward. In government, even if that you know, when the mayor sets the vision, usually through the state of the city for the for the city and for the work plan that we're going to have, there are so many things that can happen that can change that work plan. So take for instance an education crisis that says, okay, we're not going to work on X or Y. We're going to focus on our involvement with. K-12 education. Mm-hmm. We're going to look at some legislative changes at the state uh, level. Had we, we, in 2013, we probably wouldn't have contemplated that. We were probably going down another path. Uh, oh, here's an opportunity to get the DNC convention. So let's set, you know, something else aside and let's, let's really work on this. And so you have to, while government at times seems, it's, it's really interesting, and sometimes it's a contrast Government may seem slow to many, but there are times when we have to turn on a dime because something happens in that day that causes you to mm-hmm. completely change the work plan, the trajectory of kind of, you know, maybe the year or beyond with what you have to do in a, in a city. Um, and so it it is a, a contrast in that there are times when the private sector moves, you know, I say kind of at the speed of light. They can make decisions, the decisions they're made, and you go about doing your work in government. There are times you have to walk things back. You have to really consider the input of the citizenry um, who you work for. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to be very considerate and inclusive of other 
decision makers around the community and how it impacts them. But at the same time, something can happen and then government is called to lead. Mm -hmm. And so really some of the great tools of leadership I learned because when you work in government, you get a chance to do a number of things. It's not just, that's just your job, Christy. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes it's, I'm pulling you to go do something else. I'm pulling you to select the the next chief of police. I'm pulling you to work on this education uh, bill. You know, those kinds of things uh, happen all of the time. And you have to rise to the occasion as the individual, and you have to lead, and you have to lead individuals who may be directly uh, on your team and, and that you have direct kind of supervision of, but you also have to learn to lead and influence others who, I mean, they they have a connection to you, but yet at the same time, they may be from that from the outside mm-hmm. of, of government, but you still have to, to learn to, to influence and to, to, you know, use your uh, leadership skills. So I, I like to say, whenever someone says, a young person says to me, I have a chance to go work for an elected official or work on a campaign, I always tell them, try it just for a while if you really have an interest because you will get to do amazing things. You will get to do things that you might not get to do anywhere else because you're not just going to be tied to that one position. You're going to uh, get a chance to lead in a number of different ways because a lot of times it's just an, it's an all hands on deck yeah. kind of a role. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you ever think about running for office yourself? You know, early on, my best girlfriend um, and I in undergrad, she was like, I'm going to run for office. I'm going to run for city council and you're going to be my campaign manager. She's a great PR expert, no longer lives in Columbus. And we had this this game plan. We also thought we were going to be event planners. <laughs> we also thought we were going to own a nightclub. <laughs> I mean, we had lots of ideas. We even left school. This is, you know, kind of a sidebar funny story. Many people know this about me. So in my sophomore year of school, that's when I started to get bitten by the political bug. And so Susan, her name is Susan, my best friend's name is Susan. We look at each other. We're like, we're not coming back. We are going to, we had worked at a nightclub in the summer. She was on the front door and I was in the <laughs> coat room. Okay. You know, that's a great career. You know, people's coats up and the coats fell You're often. You're learning the, yes, the real inner racks. workings oh, of yes. the club. And um, we decided oh, we can do this better. And we, we started throwing these parties. And, you know, we were people were coming and paying, like, I don't know, $5 or something. Uh-huh. And we were thinking we were making all this money. We were actually just making rent and car payment <laughs> or what have you. And we, you know, basically decided we're not going back to school. And our parents were like, what is going on? <laughs> And my father said to me, well, yeah, you can do this. If you do this, this round of education was on me. You will go back to school because you will need your degree, but you will have to pay for it if you do this. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, I got this. <laughs> yeah, that was, um, we, we look back on that, you know, she and I both, uh, we look back on that. We're like, yeah, that probably wasn't the smartest decision, but it landed us where we, we got to where so we got. So how far down in the the path did you go towards so, opening a club? Uh, yeah, not very. We put a business plan together. Uh-huh. The club actually is going to be called Christie's, which is kind of cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> seeing my name in, you know, <laughs> written there. And then we just, you know, we needed to pay the bills. And I needed to go back to school. So, uh-huh. you know, she started working at the Great Southern Hotel, which is now the West Westin. I worked at a photo mat. I showed, sold shoes in retail. I mean, I did mm-hmm. a number of very you know, not lucrative jobs to put myself through school. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a tough, tough lesson to learn. But, um, and my father kept his word. I, not 
not a dime. He really, that's that's just the kind of man Ken Angel is. <laughs> and so, you know, but I finished, right? Uh-huh. And along the way, near the end of my education, I, I had the great opportunity. I met a developer, mm-hmm. a guy who was uh, managing a number of housing complexes and developing some um, affordable housing at the time. Where is he now? We could use him. He gave me the opportunity to manage an apartment complex called Urban Hollow Apartments in Urban Crest. Mm-hmm. And he took a leap of faith that I had the skills and I had the interest. And I, you know, because I was working on some political campaigns, I had some relationships and so forth. And he let me manage this apartment complex. It was subsidized housing. I learned a lot about the HUD system, housing and urban development. And there kind of started my career really in my interest in social justice causes, Mm -hmm. housing being one of them. Now, my father, uh, my uncle had deep, deep roots in community development and housing. So I think a little bit of that, you know, was kind of of the spark as well. But that helped me finish school. Mm -hmm. And while I did not return to that work until probably when I, you know, uh, a little bit when I was at the city because of the work that we do there, but... I really returned to those roots when I joined the YWCA. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of came full circle that many, many years ago, 1986, uh, 87, I did that kind of work uh, before finishing school and then mm-hmm. I joined the YWCA in 2017. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I want to talk a little bit more about that organization, but that question started with, <laughs> did you ever think about running for office? Oh. Then we talked about Oh, that's right. I just yeah. jumped <laughs> Yeah, see how it's a I'm very just, artful dodge. So yeah, so you'll be anyway, announcing your campaign. I thought I would week. run. You know, <laughs> when I was in undergrad, I thought that I had an interest in serving in political office. Once I started working for the council and and Mayor Coleman, then Council Member Coleman, I realized that I enjoyed the behind the scenes work mm-hmm. much more, and I had a full view of what it was like to be a candidate, and decided that that was not for me. Yeah, yeah. Well, you could still open a club today, probably. I probably could. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking now, no. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. I don't know, maybe. It's, it's yeah, I, in a yeah. It, you know, my husband many years ago invested in a restaurant, and he said, the margins are too thin. <laughs> it's too difficult. You have to be there all the time. Yeah, you give up yeah. a part of your life. Mm-hmm. A nightclub is worse. Yes, so. yes, <laughs> or a bar is enough. worse. So, yeah. Well, I think that's the thing. Too many people think yeah. that... I'll just open I'll a nightclub. I'll just open a nightclub. Or a bar. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so the YWCA, so had you been involved with that organization as a, a volunteer or in any other capacity, or sort of how did mm-hmm. the CEO position come around? First, I learned to swim at the YWCA mm-hmm. in the 70s when I was a little girl. My mother tells a story of, like, you know, my brother was a newborn, and she's like, I had to find something to get your energy out. And so I, I did learn to swim there. I tell people probably not very well, but <laughs> that's not an indictment on the YWCA. When I was working for AT&T, um, Yvette McGee-Brown was the board chair of YWCA, and she called me and asked me to meet with her and wanted to talk to me about some volunteer opportunities and at the Y. And, you know, if you know Yvette, you don't, one, you take the call and the meeting, and you usually don't say no. <laughs> but it was an incredible, uh, actually, uh, gift because she got me involved in raising money for the Women of Achievement mm-hmm. luncheon. And that's our biggest fundraiser. And it was then. It was our biggest fundraiser then, and it is now. And it is um, an opportunity for us to celebrate women leaders in this community. And so I got a first-hand, very in-depth look at that event 
and the organization Mm -hmm. and really just kind of fell in love with YWCA. Mm -hmm. From there, I joined the board. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I did that volunteer work for two years, two or three years in a row, raising money. So that was, you know, kind of my taking some of those skills from, you know, my event planning and Uh all that fun stuff and applying it there as a volunteer, raised money for that event and then joined the board. And I served on the board for, I think, 11 years, Mm -hmm. serving in um, every leadership position uh, very early in my board tenure. um, I became board secretary, treasurer, vice chair, and then chair, Mm -hmm. um, and then served as past chair, of course. Then, once I left the board, I just continued to stay involved. Uh So, you know, served as a captain to raise money for the renovation of our downtown building, uh, stayed on the advocacy committee. And I served on the nominating committee for a number of years, even after my board service was was, mm-hmm. was finished. And then um, I got the opportunity to join as as an employee. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and I was as I was preparing, I went to look at y'all's website, and it, it sort of answered one of the questions I was going to ask, which is: Is the board of the YWCA all? women and the leadership team? It is. Is that an intentional step? Is that just who's interested in these positions? And So the board is intentional. We are an, an all-female board, mm-hmm. and we have been that way since our founding. Mm-hmm. Uh, many YWCAs across the country are all women, uh, like us. Mm-hmm. Some have gone to gender neutral. Mm-hmm. Right now, it's a process. You have to go through the USA board mm-hmm. to get approval to become gender neutral. It's something that our board, you know, discusses from time to time, and I think you know they will continue to to discuss it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The leadership team happens to be all women, and that's just by happenstance. Yeah. Uh, that is not intentional. We do have men on our broader leadership team. Well. A man. <laughs> Roy McClellan uh, is the director of our uh, women's residency program. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. How does that feel having come from, you know, the mayor's office and AT&T where I'm... Yeah, kind of male-dominated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, I don't know, how does that feel? It, it's, it was different. I mean, from day one, it felt, I didn't even think about it, that it was going to feel so different because Mm -hmm. I had come from such male-dominated industries, whether politics, telecommunications, lobbying, all those things are very, very male-dominated. I also think all the time when I was on the board, or I know, all of the the time that I was on the YWCA board, I always had like a sense of comfort, like being in a hug when I went to the board meetings because I was like, ah, I'm with my tribe. <laughs> we're using those words then, but you know, I'm with my peeps, you know. Uh-huh. I walk out of maybe the state house or a, a meeting where, you know, I'm the only woman, mm-hmm. and generally the only woman of color, by the way, into the YWCA at the time being on the board and just walking in and being like, oh my gosh, I just feel, you know, a sense of being at home mm-hmm. and at a little bit of peace. Um, and a sigh of relief that here is where authenticity really is awakened and I can mm-hmm. truly be myself. So j- joining as, as the leader on day one, I felt that feeling again. Mm-hmm. And I was really um, just so um, glad and happy to feel that again and know that now I get to feel it every day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, you know, Diversity is important. Mm -hmm. Diversity, you know, race, gender, 
sexual orientation, age, work experience, all of that is important to build the right team. And so we recognize that we can't, we can't just wave the flag and say, yay, look at us, we have all these women working here because it means something to have men in the, in the room and in the conversation with the work that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it is, we, we strive to make sure that we have a diverse team mm-hmm. and we reach out in places and spaces to make sure that all people know that they're welcome to work at the YWCA. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah, I think that's a, a such a complicated thing to think about is if the YMCA had only men in leadership, that oh. would be problematic, yes, right? That's right. That's um, right. But when you're the, you know, historically disadvantaged group, like how do you mm-hmm. like, you know, make spaces for mm-hmm. your your kind of tribe, right. as it were. That's right. So and you know, with the work that we do, it is important that we have everyone in the conversation, we can't just talk to 50% of the population Mm -hmm. and leave the other 50% out. And so, you know, we are really, you know, intentional about being inclusive Mm -hmm. without, and and continuing to honor our values and our mission. Yeah. Well, and so tell me a little bit more. What do you, what do you wish people knew about the YWCA that they don't? Oh, wow. There's so many things. (laughs) I mean, I think a a number of people, they know our mission, right, to eliminate racism and empower women. I think the eliminate racism piece is one that, you know, I've heard everything from, well, you haven't done that yet, (laughs) thanks, Um, to what does that mean, right? Mm -hmm. That's such a lofty goal. What it means for us is that in, in the work that we do, we strive to break down the barriers that racism creates, and it's, that's not just for women, by the way, that's for everyone. It's for everyone that stands in the, in the margins. And so, you know, when you think about talking about housing, it's not just that we need more affordable housing, but we are keenly aware that disproportionately people of color are without affordable housing and disproportionately people who are in shelters, people of color, specifically African-Americans in this community. And so, therefore, we advocate for policy changes and rule changes that remove some of those barriers. Mm -hmm. Because then we will strive true, that's how you start to eliminate racism, right? You've got to get at, well, well, why is this policy this way? And Mm -hmm. this policy creates a system of inequity. And therefore, if we we make that change, then it will equitize and uh, it will equitize the you know ability to get housing, and everyone will be able to get housing. It won't just give one group you know housing and leave another group out. Now those are deep, deep, deep old mm-hmm. policies. It's it's hard work. You have to really get in and and kind of get to policymakers and others to to have those kinds of discussions. And that's just one example. But housing uh, justice is very important to us. That's anyone can find housing. And then move, removing some of those old line barriers that have come down for many, many years mm-hmm. of, of housing policy layered, kind of one policy layered on, on top of another without fixing the inequity in the system. So, you know, the GI Bill is one example of a bill that created kind of an us and them kind of environment. Mm-hmm. You know, not all GIs were tr- created equal. And then, you know, another housing policy got layered on top of that. And so we really work hard from an advocacy position to uh, make for, make those changes. And that's, you know, I think people, when they think about eliminating racism, they see us in a you know, broad swath. They may think, well, how come you're not fighting for better police community relations and some of those things? And our board has said, you know, for us, 
Uh, we want to look at housing because it connects directly to our mission. Uh, we want to look at other kinds of barriers. Pay equity is another barrier. Mm-hmm. Yes, pay equity for, we want pay equity for all women, but we also recognize women of color. Pay equity means, you know, they earn less on the mm-hmm. dollar than, than Caucasian women. We are, uh, you know, also working just to look at, you know, other policies that have kind of those race race inequality or inequalities built into them and then looking to advocate for changes there. So we stand at the ready, and usually when we, we sit at a table, especially from the advocacy table, whether we're on the Affordable Housing Alliance, whether it's uh, some of the work that the city's doing around affordable housing, um, the, the Morpsy study, um, you know, the work that we do with the Community Shelter Board, and even in leadership, we, we stand there not just for the empowerment of women, although that is part of it, but it also is to make sure that there's equity. Mm-hmm. We kind of carry that banner. And um, and so I like people, I want people to know that and understand uh-huh. that. It's hard sometimes to, you know, kind of for us to articulate all of that on a website yeah. <laughs> or on the back of a card. Uh-huh. The other thing that I want people to know is, you know, we really describe our work as working in three ways. We call it the wills, the three wills and the three ways. So the first is we will create a community of safety and support. And the way that we do that is to provide our housing. Mm-hmm. Uh, housing, uh, emergency housing for, for families who need shelter because they're experiencing homelessness, and housing for women who have a disability and were formerly homeless who need what we call permanent supportive housing. So that's housing with wraparound supports. The second will that we have is really the will to create a braver, kinder, wiser world. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably have the wills out of order. But <laughs> a braver, braver, kinder, wiser world. And there we are really looking at um, our leadership programs. So we have uh, Bright Futures, which is a leadership um, and personal development program for young girls in middle school mm-hmm. and a leadership program called Leadership for Social Change with young women just out of college, probably in their first job, you know, first position. Exploring their activism, who they are, finding their tribe, uh, learning professional development skills and, and the like. That also is where our Women of Achievement event kind mm-hmm. of sits. Um, I would say uh, that is where we celebrate and honor the women who have been leaders in this community and done amazing things in this community. Um, and we honor them not just for the work that they do on their job, mm-hmm. um, although all of them are always incredibly accomplished professionals, but we also honor them because they live our mission. Mm-hmm. And they live our mission and they uh, are unafraid to be bold and authentic to help reduce you know, barriers for women and, and uh, look at you know, issues of, of race and, and empowerment. And then we have Ignite the Community, uh-huh. Activists and Agitators. It's a new event. We launched it last year. And that is the event where we have, we celebrate the activists and the agitators in this community and beyond. But we also give people inspirational words so they can look at how they can improve their community, whatever that means to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, small steps, big steps, whatever that, that means to them. And so uh, we're really excited that event's about to come up. The, every, every dollar raised for activists and agitators will go towards funding our leadership programs, in particular Bright Futures. Mm-hmm. This year, we're lucky to have a homegrown keynote speaker in Akia Red who will tell her story 
um, about mental illness, the stigma that comes with that, and how she's working to erase the stigma, but also how she is igniting mm-hmm. kind of her voice and using it as an activist for women in this community and young girls, whether it's on that topic or other things. Uh, she's going to be amazing. Every time I'm with her, I'm like, I can't wait um, until October 17th. That's, yeah, you got to That's everything on. that we do. <laughs> three, way, three wills and three ways. Gotcha. Well, and now you've been CEO for almost two almost years. Almost two years. So this might be hard, but what's the accomplishment in those two years that you're proudest of? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> mm, that's a great question. One, improving our visibility and hitting them the refresh button on YWCA Columbus. And the reason why I list that first is that we are an organization that was born in 1886. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. And so when you're that old, essentially, you there's a lot of recreation that has to occur, right, in order to stay relevant in the community. If you don't, you will be gone. Mm-hmm. And we have had to think about that Decade after decade after decade. And when I joined in 2017, it was, it was, we were at that time. It was time mm-hmm. to think about that again. Who will, who will want to work with us? Who will pay attention to the work that we do? How do we get younger women involved? Is our, does our work still matter? Does it matter to the point of uh, keeping us relevant for the next 100 years, right? And so... Um, those were things that I talked about even in my interview with the search committee. Mm-hmm. Uh, the relevancy and the refreshing of the organization to draw new people into YWCA. And so then with that came the three wills and ways, but also really increasing our advocacy and really putting a finer point of what does elimination of racism mean. Mm-hmm. And, and for us, it, it really means if you think... It runs, it's, it cross-cuts everything that we do. And so getting people to, to embrace that and understand that. And then I would say also an amazing team. Mm-hmm. I have had the ability to really hire just about all the leaders in the organization. I think I put my team, our team, up against anybody's team. I mean, they are an amazing group of, of women and men man, um, (laughs) that come to work every day ready to fulfill the mission and and serve this community. And so you don't do anything by yourself. So the the team and then an incredible, incredibly supportive and dedicated board. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I'm very proud of of those things. I didn't do all of that, but certainly to maintain it, you know, is is part of my responsibility and to lead through through that. I'm also proud that we have, um, you know, this is kind of an aside, but we have a great uh, chief finance and CFOO, chief (laughs) finance and operations officer. I was able to kind of say, hey, you understand the business of, your responsibility is the business of running the Y, and she's been doing some really great work to use, uh, maximize our building space. And um, we are now, we have a, you know, Orange Barrel has a sign on the side of the building, mm-hmm. brings revenue into the building. We have the Matriots Political Action Committee, lease a space in the lower level of our building, brings more revenue into the building. Uh, we have a, women, a woman-owned minority and female-owned business who now leases our catering kitchen and pays mm-hmm. it forward and mentors other aspiring caterers. And so 
all of that uh, helps us improve the bottom line. Mm -hmm. and so I'm incredibly proud of her and what she's been able to do there and, um, and how she's been leading that effort because that building is a very large building and it was envisioned to be a space mm -hmm. called the Women's, the Women's Center. Uh -huh. So now it really is the Women's Center uh -huh. because of what we've got going on there. So I'm very, very proud of that. And I'm, I'm proud of where we stand in this community, where mm -hmm. we show up, how we show up, um, who invites us to the table. Mm -hmm. uh, because when I was, I will say, when I was in the mayor's office, you know, I was like, wait, where's the why? Is the why here? I would have to sometimes ask a question. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we have to ask the question anymore. The invitations come. Now we have to, to decide, mm -hmm. should we be there or not? And do we have the bandwidth? It's very rewarding. And I am grateful and appreciative of this community for keeping us uh, at the table on important issues that we're facing um, in this community. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about you a little bit more. So you're from... Columbus. Born originally. and raised. So did you ever leave or ever think about leaving? Other than that brief stint at University of Cincinnati. <laughs> <laughs> I have been here the whole time. Every time I thought I was going to leave, and I can remember all the times, well, I used to say, Mike Coleman would run for another office. Say, oh, okay, I got to stay another year. And then, you know, when he won the mayor's race in 99, I had thought, because he ran in 98 for lieutenant governor, and was not successful, ran with Lee Fisher, and I was like, oh, okay, maybe I'll, I don't know, I have to leave and go to Chicago. I don't know why Chicago, but that just was my, my Seems spot. Seems like a place to go. You know. Yeah. And then he decided to run for mayor, and I was like, nope, not leaving. I'm going to be a part of this. And then we won, and, you know, now it's like, okay, we're making history. Like, mm -hmm. I'm going to be part of this. And then I met my husband. Mm -hmm. He is also born and, born and raised, although he lived other places, and he was making Columbus his home, mm -hmm. and so the rest is history. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you all have any kids? We do not have children, just, just, just a little fur baby. Uh-huh. Who's that? Her name is Betty. We call her Betty Babs, Betty Angel Beatty. Uh-huh. has my last name and his last name. She's 15, but she's still, someone asked me the other day, like, is that a puppy? I'm like, <laughs> no. <laughs> Puppy but at heart. She appreciates it. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? A, a Toy Fox Terrier. Okay. She's a gotcha. small nine pound mm -hmm. fur baby. Who, who would you say is your role model or who do you admire? Oh my gosh. I know. There's so many. <laughs> you can mention a few. I'll mention a few. First and foremost, I will say Jerry Hammond, he is no longer with us, but he was a role model and an incredible mentor to me. There are always these things in my head sometimes that I'm like, ooh, what would Hammond, you know? That's a Jerry Hammondism, or Hammond would want you know this to happen or that to happen. And his wife, Mary Jo Green, who is was a woman of achievement in two thousand and seven, I believe. Mary Jo is an incredible woman, and I look up to her, and she is um, a mentor towards me, but also she's a role model. Um, how she's lived her life, how she continues to support this community, the arts, the social service organizations like YWCA, and she's just incredibly generous with her time and treasure, and she's just so grounded, and she's very authentic, and, you know, she's someone that I certainly look up to. Actually, my best friend, Susan, is, you know, a role model. She is uber smart and she is I love that she, she's classy she's smart she's 
you know, worked through some adversity in her life and yet, you know, always, you know, has such a positive light Mm -hmm. and is someone that I call in good times and bad, but I know I'm always going to get the, you know, you can do this, we can do this, Mm -hmm. let's, you know, let's work through it. Um, And, you know, she's been my friend since I was 18 years old. Yeah, that's great that you've been able to maintain that. Even in, you know, as we like to say, hey, we had some tough times when we were like, (laughs) at each other's throats, <laughs> but you know, we, we got through that. Uh, my, my mother is, is a role model. And I know many people say that. And my mother and I were very different, but yet she is a role model towards to me because when I think about really kind of maintaining the home, maintaining the family, I mean, I look to, to her mm-hmm. uh, for that, that inspiration, because there are times when I'm like, you know, I'm trying to do all of this and I can't do all of this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my mother will sometimes remind me, I did all of that. And I'm like, <laughs> but, you know, she also, you know, just had to take it, you know, a little bit at a, at a time. My father was an incredible role model to me, is an incredible role model, especially professional because, professionally because he, he was into community development and housing and housing justice work. And he took me with him when I was 13 years old. I used to go to work with him mm-hmm. on the weekends to look at abandoned and blighted properties to see if they could be uh, renovated and sold uh, through what they called it, a home, urban homesteading program to people for a dollar, $1. And um, it was a gateway into home ownership. Mm-hmm. And I learned about that at a very young age. And um, I even had him speak to my eighth grade class. I don't really think I want any friends by having my dad come to talk about housing in particular, but hey, I thought it was interesting. And, um, and I was class president, so you know, I got to do that. Um, but my dad, we still, you know, sometimes we have conversations, we get in these deep philosophical conversations about housing and housing policy, and he's like, you're still dealing with that? <laughs> Usually there's a, there might be an expletive or something, but he's like, you're still dealing with that? I'm like, we're still dealing with that. And he, he's like, I can go down to my file cabinet and pull out the such and such, you know, and I'm like, oh, please don't. Uh, but um, What know, did he do for a living? Or? So he first ran an organization called Neighborhood Development Corporation, which was the organization that helped build uh, what is now the Mount Vernon Plaza area over around Mount Vernon and Atchison, so near east side, King Lincoln District now, actually. <clears throat> then he went to work uh, as the assistant administrator of community development for the city of Columbus mm-hmm. and ran their urban homesteading program. Gotcha. That program was first started by Mike White, who decided he was going to go on to run for mayor of Cleveland. Mm-hmm. So Mike, I'm told, sitting in our kitchen, said, I'm going to run for mayor of Cleveland and started thinking about who could replace him. And then my father mm-hmm. uh, replaced him and, and actually, you know, ran the, implemented the program. And for many, many years, gosh, I want to say more than 10, probably closer to 15 years, he ran that program. I still meet people today who tell me their first home, the house uh-huh. that they grew up in was one of those dollar houses. Yeah, yeah. And that, that was their, their family's uh, gateway mm-hmm. into home ownership. It was a great program. Many of us have talked about how do we bring it back, and, you know, there's still some communities that, that utilize it it's changed a bit with HUD and all the new the HUD guidelines and, and those kinds of things. But nevertheless, that for me, I mean, I looked up to him and that work and just thought it was amazing working yeah. that could transform a community and give a family 
a start, mm-hmm. um, you know, to own their own home. Yeah, I interviewed when I was in Nashville. I interviewed a woman who had I was doing a project about gentrification and stuff, and a woman who was living in the middle of this neighborhood where there's half a million dollar homes all around her, and she'd been in her house for forty years or whatever. And I went and like looked up the, and I think she said like, "Oh, I got it for a dollar. dollar." And I was like, "What?" Mm-hmm. Went and looked up the property record. Yeah. And sure enough, and it was one of those yeah. homes. You get the house for a dollar and get a low interest rate loan. Yeah. And yeah. I remember the banks were all in, and he, you know, he knew all these bankers, and I mean, I got to know. And through that, I, I mean, it's it sounds kind of funny, but a guy named Warren Tyler became very close to Warren because he had this relationship with my dad through the banking world, trying to you know set up the loans for that program. And Dawn Tyler Lee is his daughter. She's mayor's deputy chief of staff. Like this, like these relationships that I've been able to develop because, like, people knew Ken Angel and people knew that program. And then I was his daughter, mm-hmm. and you know, I guess I don't know. Those roots run ran through me, and and so it was pretty. It's kind of an amazing. Yeah. That, that that's an amazing adventure. But there's so many people in this community that I look up to. I mean, you know, people like Yvette McGee Brown and Janet Jackson and. I mean, it just goes on and mm-hmm. on and on. I mean, Jane Grody Abel. Mm-hmm. Jane is, she's a board member, but she and I, went to, we went to high school together. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. And what she's done with the Reeb Avenue Center, um, I just, I so admire her tenacity and her willingness to say, yep, we're, we're you know, Donato's, this is what we do, but we care about this, and, and my family came from this community, and I want to, want to make mm-hmm. it better. I just, and I watched her go through every phase of that with Tanny Crane to raise the money, the blood, the sweat, and tears. I mean, it really was. Not to mention some of the hottest days in Columbus, standing outside, opening that place. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> but those kinds of, you know, people, there, mm-hmm. there, there's so many in this community yeah. that, I could, that I could think about. And um, I'm grateful to and uh-huh. appreciative of that I've had the chance to learn from them and work with them. Awesome. All right. Well, I guess I would say Mayor Coleman. Uh, (laughs) He's probably like, really? (laughs) He's going to get to the end of this podcast and be like, "Ah." horse Mayor Coleman. (laughs) All right. Last question. If you could give one piece of advice to a a young woman just graduating from school right now, entering the workforce, um, wants to follow in your footsteps, be the CEO of a a (laughs) significant nonprofit, what Mm. can she do to follow? Well, first I would say, Find your passion, because nonprofit work is. I think you need to be passionate about the work. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not for the faint at heart. It, it's it's tough work, whether it's workforce development or housing or youth development, whatever it is. I think you need to be passionate about it. Passionate, you know, needs to be a part of your work because if you're a nonprofit leader, the other thing you have to do is you have to raise money mm-hmm. and. You need to be passionate about it when you're <laughs> telling people, you're asking people for their hard-earned dollars. You should be passionate about and believe in what you're, what you're, you know, um, what you're leading. Um, I would say, and a way to do that is to volunteer, mm-hmm. right? to volunteer and learn about organizations in this community and work that's being done. And then you, you know, and give yourself time to explore mm-hmm. that. I think that people should try their hand at some kind of, if they have a chance, to do some work in government, uh, maybe a legislative aide, a staffer position. I know that, you know, there aren't hundreds and hundreds of those. Maybe go work on a campaign. You get your chan- a chance to do so many things. 
event planning, media relations, mm-hmm. the handling the candidate, negotiations, because, you know, there are two, there's, you know, there's two sides, there's two candidate teams, et cetera. I mean, there's some really great lessons there, not to mention the, this has to get done and I don't care if you're the <laughs> chief this or the, you know, entry uh-huh. level that. Everybody's all in and does it, right? Pizza's around the table. Let's do it. We got to lick the envelopes, and I guess they still do that, but, uh-huh. you know, we got to stuff the envelopes. We got to do, you know, get ready for whatever event. We got to blow up balloons, whatever it is, and I think there are valuable team lessons that can be learned there, and when you do that kind of work, there is nothing that when you get, because when you get in the CEO job, it, I still, there are things that I still have to do and I need to do that aren't the sexy part of the job. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, if there's paper out flying around in front of the building, I pick it up. <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't just call somebody and say, come pick it up. I pick it up. If what, coffee needs to be served in a, in a board meeting, I'm happy to carry that coffee in there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all of those things because you have to do all of the things. Mm-hmm. And you learn about that and you learn to do it, you know, I think with a smile. And you just... You build such an incredible team environment. I would also say if a woman, young woman is interested in this kind of work or following my footsteps, come volunteer with us at the YWCA. <laughs> I mean, if you're interested in the YWCA, come volunteer. Uh, volunteers are always, um, there's all kinds of ways in which they can get involved. Sign up for, um, apply for our leadership program. Um, in the fall, the new applications will, will be uh, out probably in November or so, and um, we have a limited number of slots, but um, you can find it on our website and learn more about Leadership for Social Change. Or, you know, I always say, if someone really is interested, people can shadow me. I'm mm-hmm. always, you know, open to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and come meet some of the leaders in our organization because we have some incredible people who work at YWCA and. Maybe you don't want to work at the YWCA, but you'll still learn a lot about nonprofit leadership. Awesome. Great. Well, I could talk to you all day, but I think we should probably wrap up. So all right. Thank well, thank you, you so Eleanor. much, this Christy. Was, this was a pleasure. Thank you very much. It was terrific. And thank you all for listening.